0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
1: I am an adult, so sometimes I use LinkedIn. And when I'm on LinkedIn, I see the same stuff I think you do. There's job announcements, people talking about promotions, you get a few likes, a few congratulations, that's it. Well, that is not what happened to Renata Nyborg when she posted something on LinkedIn a few months ago. Nyborg was starting a new gig. She was thinking about starting a company. She wasn't sure what it would do, didn't even have a name yet, but she wrote about it on LinkedIn anyway.
2: I said uh, I'm joining AI Fund as a founder in residence. I'm going to be working with Andrew Ng, who's been a long term hero of mine, to work on something in the health space.
1: Some quick translation here. Andrew Ng is a big name in artificial intelligence. He runs an investment company called AI Fund. And so Nyborg was saying basically, hey, I'm eventually going to do something. It's going to be something involving health and something involving AI. So, yeah, she got the likes and congratulations, but she got a lot more. Because it turns out that she was essentially putting out a bat signal for people with money who wanted to put that money into tech's hottest new thing.
2: It was really funny. My inbox went bananas. Uh, Even though no one knew what I was working on and I hadn't decided what I was working on yet. I received inbound interest from dozens and dozens of VCs, some of whom were extremely persistent. I was even at dinner with a friend last night who said, yeah, I was just getting... So many VCs calling me saying, I think, you know, Renata, can you please try and get a coffee set up with me?
1: People who want to give you money are reaching out to your friends so they can get in touch with you. They're bothering your friends because they're so desperate to give you money, even though they don't know what you built and you don't know what you're building. Correct. (laughs) Did you expect that? No. I just want to spell out how unusual this is. Sometimes at the height of a Silicon Valley hype cycle, you hear about people literally investing based on a napkin sketch, just the bare bones of an idea. And this is pre-napkin sketch. There is no idea. To be fair, Renata Nyborg is not your average startup founder. She was making apps for mobile phones long before the iPhone came along. She was an executive at Apple. Her last job title was CEO of Tinder. So she's a good bet for VCs. But at this point, Nyborg wasn't even looking to raise money.
2: No, that wasn't the purpose at all. I was very surprised. And initially, uh, I really wanted to focus on finding my problem and and prototyping. And so I didn't
1: respond to most of these people. Instead, Nyborg figured out what she actually wanted to work on. And she decided she wanted to solve loneliness.
2: I think it is the biggest threat to our health, to democracy and a bunch of other things. But luckily there is a medicine which is human connection, so I'm working on that.
1: And she named her company Amorai, as in Amor, that's love, plus AI. And the first product she's working on launching is a subscription-based AI relationship coach.
2: I've been trying to explain it to people more as the movie Ratatouille. The movie Ratatouille is about a rat who knows everything there is to know about food. And he helps a young man who wants to be a Michelin-star chef cook fantastic meals.
1: You're going to sit on top of my head and show me how to chop stuff. and so you're a perfect chef. Myself again. And, <laughs> and this will apply to health and loneliness.
2: It's a coach that is basically helping you find solutions to practical problems that you have. Um, so this could range from, I'm struggling to get out of my breakup, can you help? Uh, very practical things, like I keep seeing iPhone memory, photo memories coming up on my phone. What do I do about it?
1: Nyborg was cagey when I asked her how her customers are gonna actually interact with this relationship coach, and she's still working on it. But she did say you'd be able to text with it. And this brings up a question, why does this product need to be an AI texting thing at all? Why couldn't you just talk to a human? Because those things exist. And one answer, obviously, is that AI is supposed to be cheaper. But Nyborg also says that according to her own market research, her customers, or at least some of them, don't want to talk to a human. They want to talk to an AI.
2: Young men uh, actually felt much more comfortable interacting with some of the features of this product because they knew it was AI. um, And it allowed them actually to explore some of these vulnerable emotions for the very first time.
1: Dudes dudes are more likely to talk to a person they know is not a person because they feel more comfortable knowing it's a computer.
2: As a starting point, it's not supposed to give you a fake friend that you talk to for the rest of your life. It's very much focused on giving you advice and ideas for how to do things in the real world.
1: So now our company had a name and a product, and it was time to actually start raising money. When you decided you were going to build, um, how long did it take you to, to raise that money and, and how much did you raise?
2: I'm not disclosing how much we raised, but I raised the round in 24 hours last week.
1: Okay, so put that <laughs> in context for people who are not hanging out in startup land. How common is it to raise money to start a new company in 24 hours?
2: Pretty uncommon, especially at the
1: moment. What What did that tell you about about the world in January of 2023?
2: I think it told me that people are really interested to get a foot in the door with AI. This is a time where people that maybe put money into crypto or the quote unquote metaverse and so on are looking for the next thing to double down on.
1: And this is what doubling down looks like in Silicon Valley. Investors are supposed to pour 43 billion dollars into AI this year. That number is supposed to get to 98 billion by 2026. And one big question is whether all this money is going to pay off for individual startups like Renata Nyborg's, or whether the real winners in AI are going to be a handful of big companies that are already established. Today, I'm going to talk to two people who are trying to figure this out. First up is Dror Berman. He's a venture capitalist at Innovation Endeavors. It's a company he co-founded with Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google. And he's one of the guys throwing a ton of money at AI companies. And the reason he thinks he'll get it right is because he's done it before. Some people who are psyched about AI say it's gonna be a new platform like the App Store and on the iPhone, which led to the creation of some big new companies like Uber. And Jor Berman invested in Uber. So maybe he's going to find the AI version. So the positive version of the AI moment we're in is the one you believe in is this is another big, important shift like the iPhone and mobile was. So if that works out for you personally, that's great. And for the world, supposedly, that would be good. The cynical version is: This is the blockchain. This is Web three. This is a thing people were very excited about a couple of years, just a year ago. You have people having really serious conversations about Web three and how it's going to change the world, and and now there's NFT conferences that no one is attending. There's just empty hallways. Tell us why you believe this is the mobile version of the future and not the blockchain version of the future.
0: I think it's a much more exciting point in time than the mobile version. I mean, the mobile version was an interesting time because it provided sort of a new form factor that allow you to carry a computer with you and do certain things. I think we are now standing in a completely different time where we, we are now, we've now been introduced to a foundational intelligence block that has become available to us. It basically can lean on all the publicly available knowledge that humanity has extracted and documented. And it allows us now to essentially retrieve all this information in a way that wasn't possible in the past. It's flexible, it can adapt, it can learn. And largely it performs way better than anybody expected. Now, to your question about Web3 and, you know, I've, I've been doing this for quite a while now, so I've seen all the different hype loops and so on. I think every once in a while you do get, you know, certain hype cycles uh, that are based on completely wrong things. I think in my opinion, and I might be not the most informed person about blockchain, I'm sure a lot of people will disagree. I actually looked quite deeply in the early days of uh, blockchain to try and understand what was there. And I couldn't find really interesting application that somebody could use. So this is not one of those cases. We've already been developing it uh, and seeing the, the applications in the real world. And I think we're just getting started. You seem smart you've got a track
1: record, you're working with the former CEO of Google, you seem like you know your stuff. You've got a good argument for why this stuff is important. Again, a year ago, I was talking with other smart people who had track records and seemed very convincing. And they were telling me blockchain or Web3 or some version of that was the future. What's a useful way for a person who's not deep into this to go, all right, that was BS, but this is the real thing.
0: Yeah, it's actually fairly easy. I mean, go to ChatGPT and have a discussion. I was doing that last night. I was uh, thinking about this interview and preparing, and I was uh, my my nine-year-old daughter came down. She couldn't fall asleep, so she came down and said, "Like, hey, let's let me show you something." And you know, we started playing with it, and the amount of things that uh, we could do was just you know it was just almost like magic. I asked uh, ChatGPT to write a story for her. And then I asked it to adjust the story to be in the style of Dr. Seuss. And I asked her, JGPT to adjust the story to be in the style of South Park. And sort of, and then I provided more and more constraints and it kept evolving and changing. And so, you know, we are seeing the same thing now across many different domains that are just starting to discover what's possible now. We're seeing the same in healthcare, we're seeing the same in education. We can now personalize and summarize very complicated concepts to make them available and accessible to anyone. And it's available for everyone you can just sign up and and see what it is so there's stuff you can use right
1: now and i guess to me that's the biggest i mean obviously there's lots of other distinctions but when we were talking about web3 you'd show someone a picture of a monkey smoking and saying this is worth a lot of money (laughs) and we're going to make movies out of it and i think neither of those things turned out to be true but even if that was the case it was sort of hard to understand what we were doing beyond that so let me, let me talk to you about stuff you are excited about um you have a lot of money to deploy into ai and you've been doing it what are specific ideas and use cases that you are excited about that you think this is money i can deploy right now because this is a real thing
0: Yeah, I'm excited about anything where initially we could use this kind of technology as sort of a co-pilot or a partner for an expert, right? And I think we're going to start seeing that across many different domains, anything from drug discovery and use that to design better medicine. Right, I think that's one of the one of those use cases is exciting for me. I'm also excited about new type of companies that build on this sort of foundational layer of what we call large language models with more specialized data. So you can think about a new language model that is largely targeting specific domains like healthcare and you know it's, it's trained on very specific data that maybe is not accessible to open AI and can allow us to answer certain healthcare questions to diagnose different diseases you know faster better and cheaper and so on and so forth and then you know we've also invested in quite a few companies we have companies that generate, already use generative AI to generate better text and copy and 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 stories so we have companies that use generative AI to look at all the information is available in the financial world and help people consume this kind of information
1: people are very excited about this um and you believe this is real and not bs but there is a lot of stuff coming at you what are examples of stuff that people are bringing you that you don't want any part of because you don't think it's real you think this is made up or or can't deliver or isn't that interesting What, what stuff do you not want to touch
0: Yeah. I I would say the sort of the obvious stuff of things that do negative things in the world that I I would not want to touch. So you don't want an
1: automated bomb making machine.
0: Yes. And I think we we, we do not want that. But I think in general, my approach to investing over the years has been one that is trying to look at very specific constraint type of uh, problems. I've been worried about people who are trying to create the next big thing in something where we, it's clear that we are not there yet, you know, autonomous vehicles, which we sort of, we saw the wave of autonomous vehicles roughly, I don't know, seven, eight, eight years mm-hmm. ago, where there's a lot of companies that promised us we so we have robot taxis running around every corner that largely didn't work. What did work uh, was a much more constrained version of it. Uh, this was a company we invested in called Gadic, that basically decided to build a very specific applications that they look at the problem of how do we move goods from one distribution center to another, where you could actually sort of train on just this specific route. And they are driving autonomously now for for Walmart and a few other big customers.
1: It seems like there's an interesting tension there because... You say, I'm excited about this stuff. This is going to change the world. I'm looking for companies and leaders who can change the world. You also say, I'm looking for people who can work on a constrained problem and not trying to boil the ocean and don't tell us we're going to have self-driving cars on every corner, but we could use them in this very limited way. Um, How do you balance those ideas out?
0: I think you should, as a leader for a lot of those companies, I think you should do both. I think a lot of people perhaps overestimate what they can do in 18 months, but underestimate what they can do in five years. I want the essentially to understand what's the five or 10 year plan of how this could actually change the industry. But I also like to see a very concrete plan on how we're going to go into the next step and achieve something meaningful because a lot of those companies, they need to raise money. They need to show their employees that there is something real behind this vision. And actually that's hard to do if you just build something for 10 years that nobody can actually see. So I think for the best leaders, basically try to balance those two things and build a real company around them.
1: One thing I've heard a lot of people point to saying this works right now, it has real meaningful consequences, is using generative AI to to write software. Does that make sense to you? Are you excited about that idea?
0: yeah the only solutions out there if you look at uh, github copilot and others that could look now at all the pieces of code that were available to them to essentially learn and then reason based on the context what what you've written before and so on to essentially allow you to complete your code so the github copilot for example is already out there it's generating real revenue this is already saving a huge amount of time for developers and largely leading them to write better code. But what's interesting is also those systems are learning and getting better. So looking at every type of recommendation you decide to take and every type of recommendation you decide not to take, what should make the system better? So those systems become better as more people use it and as they use it more.
1: It's really interesting to think about AI being trained to write code because for most of my adult life i've been told that you know a good job for people to have is to figure out how to learn how to code right now it's almost a punchline, um and now you've got computers that can do that and this was supposed to be lucrative sustainable white collar work or now we're saying computers can do this work should people be worried about about ai replacing them you know whether it's coding or, or other work
0: I think society will need to adapt. I think we're sort of just starting an era where a lot of those systems are very, very powerful and allowing us to do things that we never thought would be possible. By the way, largely, we don't yet understand what is fully possible. We don't also fully understand how some of those systems work. So I think that the answer is yes, you should not necessarily be worried. But I think you should think about how do we adapt to this new era where we can do new type of things
1: I want to get a little point here though right like eventually these companies you're investing in that that, or whether you're investing in them or not that are writing code for instance the pitch to someone who's going to buy them use them is maybe it's we're going to help your existing workforce produce more work and produce better work but inevitably part of that pitch is you're going to have to spend less on coders because we've got this machine that can do it for you right this is the the John Henry parable isn't part of the promise of this tech inevitably that that it it does cut costs by reducing the number of people you need to make something
0: i don't view that, that way although you could look at it that way if you want to i think it sort of if you look at even the github copilot project it basically allows us for now at least to achieve significantly more that we were able to achieve with the same amount of developers so you can think about writing faster better code in a way that wasn't possible up until even sort of six months ago. In the beginning, um, we're going to see more of those co-pilot type of um, software, right? So we're going to see more AI as a partner to a lot of those AI is assisting as they... you,
1: right? I hear, this, yes. I hear this idea a lot. And it sounds like people believe that, but it also seems impossible to believe that people aren't saying... Sure, they could be the co-pilot, but why don't we just make them the pilot? Why should humans do this work if computers and software and robots can do it? Um, We shouldn't have them doing that. We should replace them. It makes much more sense.
0: Yeah. And I think we've already been seeing some of this tension over the last even 10 years in using AI. I think largely in a lot of those domains that we've been very used to having those being run by experts, including biology and material science and so on, we've started to see more reliance on on data and ai to essentially guide us uh, through this process and do things significantly faster and i think this kind of technology allows us to power boost this cycle even more and it will get better as we in some of those domains as we take humans out of the loop i think that would mean that in a lot of those domains humanity will need to adjust i think it would allow us to do greater things. It would allow us to dream bigger. And the exciting part of it, which, which I see, is that it would allow us to solve a lot of the imminent problems that we need to solve as humanity, I mean, we've all seen how important it is to come up with a solution for COVID in a very short amount of time. I live in California, and I see the fires uh, spreading here every summer now. And you know, this is you know, this is just one other example of climate change. But we know that we need to do significantly better. And if you look at the historically the pace of innovation we've had as humanity, and you just sort of extrapolate from it as to where we we would be in the next 10, 20 years, it's not going to be enough. So this kind of system should allow us to move significantly faster. And For me, that's exciting. If I
1: summarize what you're saying is, yes, some people are going to lose jobs, but we're going to move faster. We're going to make new stuff and we're willing to live with that. That will be one of the downsides is that some people will not have jobs, but the net result is better and positive. And that's what the future we want. Is that a fair summary?
0: Yeah, and I think some people will lose jobs. Some people will adjust and get new jobs. So we have a company called Canvas Robotics that is, is developing a new type of robot for the construction industry and they're actually working with the union to train the workforce to essentially use this kind of robot. And I mean, guess what? A lot of those jobs that a lot of those technologies replace are not necessarily the jobs that a lot of people want to do anyway. So I think that we're going to see a lot of new capabilities that will allow us to train people to do much more exciting jobs as well. Um.
1: I'm talking to uh, several people who are real skeptics of AI, um, but rather than repeat their arguments, I'm curious what, what you're skeptical about when it comes to people making claims for AI or concerns people have AI. Which ones are resonant for you?
0: I mean, I think we have still a lot of limitations. I think from a capability perspective, there are still domains where there's not a lot of publicly available data, so we don't necessarily know how the performance of those models will work. I think there are some limitations around What I see is transparency. Again, we don't understand why those models work the way they are. Like, what makes uh, OpenAI or ChatGPT write a South Park-like story? And I can I can ask it to make it more funny, and it will. And you know, we don't necessarily understand it fully. There is a lot of biases concerns because again, we are leaning on a lot of existing data. So you know, if the existing data is biased Mm -hmm. in some ways, this might generate bias in the future. And then there are some ethical concerns, right? Like that, you know, regulators will need to address. You know, how do we prevent people from doing really bad things using these kind of technologies?
1: I'm sure you've seen this. There was a letter uh, published recently by a lot of uh, uh, serious people saying, "Hey, hey, we got to slow down this AI stuff. We we just don't know where it's going. Let's take a six month pause." I don't think anyone's going to listen to them. But but do you do you take that? That line of argument, seriously, that we're plunging headlong into something and we don't fully understand what we're doing and we should slow down. We shouldn't try to speed up.
0: Well, I think that uh, even if we wanted to do it or if we thought it was a good idea, I think it's not feasible at this point in time. I do think that regulators will need to address the concerns here. Right. And I'm not a regulator, so it's not up for me to uh to decide how this would happen, but I think uh, regulators will need to address it. I think, for as far as I can, uh, you know, influence this sort of uh, making sure that things are going in the right direction. You know, we think about seriously with the companies that we are working with, right? So essentially, how do we how do we get a how do we make sure there is no negative externalities to the products that we're putting out there? How do we? I'm gonna stop you right there. What does negative externality mean? Avoiding bad things from happening uh, unintentionally. So yeah, I think for, for us as investors, as people who are actively involved with the companies that we support, we need to provide a governance to make sure that the products we put out there are doing positive things in the world and avoiding negative unintentional consequences as well.
1: Your bio says you invest in ideas that are, this is a quote, driving exponential rates of change in their industries. So that's pretty broad. Which, what industries do you think are gonna see the most exponential change from AI?
0: So the, the things that we, we've been focused on is a lot of industries that are encoded in the physical and biological worlds. And I think those historically have benefited less from technology and are now standing to benefit significantly more because of what we talked about earlier, because a lot of those industries have been largely driven by humans, by scientists going through very slow cycles and sort of building the next step. And what's exciting is that a lot of them have been digitized or increasingly getting more digitized with an increasing amount of sensing that is available to us. We now have the compute power to essentially take all these massive amounts of data, such as what we just talked about, and infer from it and come up with sort of new ideas based on the data. And then we can engineer things back on the physical and biological world in a way that wasn't possible even a few years ago. So we can use robotics and automation to build things faster, and we can use synthetic biology to manipulate living things. And I'm also excited about the foundational layer. So, you know, the next companies that basically allow us to build the next set of tools, the open AIs of the world, you know, those kind of companies that are generating the next set of technologies to allow us to keep changing the world.
1: Up next, inside the brains of Silicon Valley and who the Valley thinks is really going to win the AI moment. Jessica Lesson is the editor in chief of the technology news site, The Information. Before that, she covered tech for the Wall Street Journal. She knows tech inside and out. She's got her finger on the pulse of the VC class in Silicon Valley. And right now, that pulse is racing. And I was hoping she could explain why. Jess, welcome.
3: Thanks for having me, Peter.
1: Thanks for coming in. I wanted you to translate AI for me and, and, and AI and Silicon Valley and sort of the tech mindset. Obviously, your reporters on staff are covering the AI moment, the AI boom, but you're also just in the mix. You're with mm-hmm. founders, with entrepreneurs. You've got a decent sense of what they're thinking about, sometimes what they might say when they're not being recorded, when they're not on the record. Let me just start big picture. What? How would you describe Silicon Valley's attitude towards AI right now, April 2023?
3: excited is actually, in a a corny way, almost the word that comes to mind. I think there is a real energy to both the activity at many startups and also in the big companies. You know, we've got Microsoft fighting Google, tripping over each other to get their press release out, you know, with the latest version. And there is a real energy and excitement. There's, I'd say, also You've really felt the concern growing a little bit, Mm -hmm. like, what are we unleashing here? But overwhelmingly, I'd say to start, you know, it's felt like this kind of breath of fresh air. There is something exciting to talk about that isn't crypto.
1: Put this in context. Have you seen other Silicon Valley hype? cycles before people get excited. It's the nature of Silicon Valley, I think, both because it's supposed to be forward-looking and optimistic, and also they need a thing to be excited about professionally. Does this feel different than other booms or boomlets or would-be booms you've seen in the past?
3: It does. I mean, there are some similarities. So maybe to start with those, you know, every day I hear about a new venture fund that is pivoting to AI or, you know, dressing its latest fund exclusively in AI. And that, to me, feels very crypto or even very VR, AR, one of these other trends. Now, there are very big questions about the business models that Mm -hmm. I think actually have a lot of investors pretty nervous as well. And so, It feels like we might be transitioning from the phase one optimism to the phase two a bit more cautious. But I would say it it does feel palpably different from crypto in that, you know, it's not something wonky that no one necessarily understands, although not that we all understand it. But so many people are using these tools. And so there's a familiarity uh, with the use case that I think is helping drive it.
1: It seems to me that maybe it's a coincidence and maybe it's not that the crypto boom died out. If we were talking a year ago, we would have been very interested in crypto and Web3, but I think by this summer that was pretty much exhausted and there were lots of different markers for it and almost as if on cue... Within a month or so, it seemed like and throughout the fall, everyone was getting progressively more excited about AI. Is that total coincidence or is there a link between the end of one bull phase and the beginning of another one?
3: There's a link. I mean, this is a place of cycles. And I think it, that can lead to a lot of hype, but it also leads to a lot of investment and a lot of innovation. So there is no question that the world out here has been looking and is always looking for a new platform, a new set of technologies and as crypto was falling, that absolutely fueled AI in a lot of ways but 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 it is also more than that. One of the reasons AI is so exciting right now is there have been these sort of sleeping giants that have been pushing the field forward and open AI, you know, a, a company, run by Sam Altman with a strong alliance with Microsoft, I think is very important here because I credit a lot of the enthusiasm around this cycle with sort of their business decisions to start releasing product, to market it to developers, to try and build a very broad bottoms up kind of network of partners, I think in large part to counteract the bigger platforms and mm-hmm. to kind of play a game they can't. And so I think when we look back on the timing of this part of the cycle, their role in it will be very important.
1: I was going to ask you about about Google, Microsoft, OpenAI, but but something you just said is really intriguing, something I've, I've been thinking about a lot. What did OpenAI do? What can they do that they can do mm-hmm. sort of as a startup that uh, a meta or a Google either can't or thinks it can't?
3: It's a wonderful question. And and I think a lot of that is unknown, but is in the eyes of the decision makers at these companies who are trying to, you know, avoid unwanted regulatory scrutiny. You know, Google is one of the most closely watched companies on the planet from regulators around the world concerned about its growing power and for better or worse. And it, it may turn out worse. You know, Sundar and the leadership there has decided to be very, very cautious. And, you know, our reporting has shown had years of projects under the hood that just didn't progress or that came out in kind of compromised ways because of that. And even if you use their chat tool today, Bard, it, it comes with a very big disclaimer on top around you know accuracy, trustworthiness, mm-hmm. sort of saying, we want you to play with this, but don't let it backfire.
1: They're so big, they can't afford to move fast and break things anymore.
3: Yes, and, and and look it it's a very uncomfortable landscape with these chat bots kind of synthesizing some real information, some made up information, acting so human like in their conversations, we can forget that. I mean, there are reasons to be cautious. OpenAI has not been. Now now again, I think they have guardrails as well. It's not that they think it's the Wild West, mm-hmm. but it with so many things from Dolly on the images all the way up through chat, you know, they've really kind of taken, and this seems very Sam Altman, right, who came from Y Combinator and the startup world out here, very, let's win over the hearts and minds of developers and get mm-hmm. our hooks into as many products as possible.
1: It From afar, it feels like it has that old Silicon Valley ethos. We're in the garage, we're playing around, we're going to put stuff out. It's software, so inherently we know that it will have bugs and it will get better over time and, and our users expect that. And so I, I I see the appeal of that to a lot of people who are in the Valley. On the other hand, this is a different kind of tech, right? And and the world's different than it was when Silicon Valley got its start. And even when these internet entrepreneurs were starting, it's really interesting to me that Microsoft, which is not mm-hmm. a startup and is, is, is dodgy and entrenched in the existing software world as you can be, has taken a bet on this and has put... OpenAI product out in the world and said pretty much the same thing as Google, like this could all be wrong. Let's see. How how does, could, do you have any insight into Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft? It seems uncharacteristically risky for any company this size, let alone Microsoft, to be playing with this stuff it doesn't fully have control over yet.
3: It's an excellent question. And again, I think our reporting shows he felt he had no choice because they were behind. And Microsoft Research was not making the kind of progress Satya wanted to see or that he felt, you know, others were. And along came this small company that needed servers, and a lot of them. And in a partnership forged over cloud computing, you know, OpenAI got the infrastructure and the capital it needs. And by the way, it needs a shit ton more. So we have to figure out where that's going to come from. And I think Microsoft got... Also seems like a great deal, you know, a a deep relationship, the ability to integrate into their products what they need and want to, and then also a share of the profit. So I think Microsoft fears not having a very strong consumer presence. That consumer beachhead does a lot for your brand over in the coming decades. And you've seen them kind of chip away at that. They obviously have a gaming business, there's LinkedIn, but I I unfortunately have the scars of covering their pursuit of Yahoo and also their pursuit of TikTok, many, many scars in this area. And so I think you can see um, the opportunity that they saw in AI. I think think lastly too, and and Satya was uncharacteristically public about saying this, if they can, by integrating AI into Bing, just make Google less profitable, That is also a win to challenge the business models of, of their rivals is, is also part of the agenda here. So it's, it's very multifaceted yeah. and, and I think will evolve in a myriad of ways.
1: One thing I haven't talked about on this series so far, you mentioned it, is the connection between cloud and servers and mm-hmm. this tech. So how does Microsoft, Microsoft has this existing cloud business, how does that fit with their partnership slash investment with OpenAI? And, and how does that work for Google or Meta? Is there an underlying or secondary business that all these companies are in when it comes to sort of running these systems?
3: You know, Microsoft has been locked in a war for companies to use its remote computing technology called Azure. It's a tight three-way battle between Amazon, Microsoft, and Google, and Amazon's the clear winner. And so to land big companies and partnerships using your technology can not only be good for business, but also can help you literally refine and scale your systems to then open that to more people to compete more for companies. So Microsoft can say, hey, work with us because you can have these cool AI features rolled in. So while, you know, OpenAI is not pay, the way their deal is structured is Microsoft's investment is essentially in the form of credits for Azure. So it's not like they're getting big checks cut from OpenAI directly- They're saying you
1: can use our software for free slash not for free, but you've yes. earned $10 billion with the credits using to use exactly. our s- systems.
3: Yeah, but what it means is they are, are then getting access to technology that they can resell and scale. So it's, it's very much, uh, again, in the war with Google and, and especially Amazon, a key strategy for them.
1: So let's talk about business model. You mentioned this earlier. Um, there's a couple different theories. One is all the winning, all the winners are the companies we already know. It's the Googles mm-hmm. and Microsofts of the world. There's a second, not necessarily competing theory. It says and there'll be an open AI and stability and a couple leaders that have sort of you know staked out a claim in AI already. And the third is. This is a platform. All these Mm -hmm. companies are going to, there's going to be a whole new slew of companies making stuff on top of this technology. They can be winners as well. And the example we always hear about is Uber developing on the iPhone. You hear different opinions. First of all, is there a conventional wisdom on this right now? Or is it up for debate from the the smart folks you talk to?
3: You know, increasingly, the smart folks I talk to seem bearish on startups' ability to make a lot of money here. Um, Which is
1: a bummer for some of the people who have already been on this podcast telling about their new startup that's going to yes. bring a lawyer into the courtroom, or that's going to help you, coach you through loneliness. And you're saying that a lot of VCs would be skeptical of this at this point.
3: At this moment now, but I, I think the way this industry will evolve is like, we don't yet know what the, to use your analogy, Uber to the mobile phone. We don't necessarily know what the Ubers of AI are going to be. And now this is something crypto also said. So as I say it, I have to check myself. But I think that's kind of true. And so the category of startup to be wary of as a business is, you know, there are so many open APIs and you can use, you know, open AI's technology and people are open sourcing all of this too. So, you know, very quickly now, two developers can come up with, a new game, a new way of accomplishing some productivity Which doesn't,
1: and that's a good thing, right? That's a good thing for them. It's the the question is, is that something that an investor wants to put a ton of money into?
3: Right. Well, A, it doesn't need a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And then B, you know, how do you ensure that isn't going to be eclipsed right away? Or how do you think about um, how that will compare to the open source version that someone else could release tomorrow? And so that's kind of what's being sorted through. I mean, one thing I hear a lot is the value will be in the data and the proprietary data sets. And so companies who will be able to make money will basically be running these algorithms over unique data sets. And that's where the uniqueness, I guess, will exist.
1: Meaning I'm in healthcare, I have access to a lot of proprietary data that you literally can't get anywhere else. I have access to it and I'm gonna integrate AI with that and create something that you can't duplicate.
3: Right. And therefore, my, you know, patient predicting what kind of treatment this patient needs, right? Because it's been trained on data no one else has, it's that much smarter. I mean, that that intuitively makes sense to me. And I think, like, key data sets, AIs that are focused on very specific verticals, you know, sales prospecting tools that are using, you know, unique sales information. But you do start to see the moats around these business kind of crumble because what if you could just rely on the whole internet to come up with sales prospecting information, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden that sales lead list, right, that one seller has doesn't have much value. So, I mean, th- there used to be this joke that the business model for an AI company was an Aqua hire to Google, right? So, every VC I spoke to who had invested in some AI company said, "Oh, my exit plan is Google's going to buy it because mm-hmm. Google was hoarding researchers and the people who said that now stop saying that because but they don't know what else to say." And so, um, I think we'll figure it out. I, I also think that to your point about whether this makes the incumbents stronger, I mean, absolutely, right. If if you sticking with sales, right, if Salesforce can very quickly deploy AI in a way that makes its products stickier. That's a huge win for Salesforce. The path to Salesforce being disrupted by a startup in this space is is harder to see at this point, but it could just be that that's where we are in the cycle.
1: When we first started talking you said you know some of the optimism is turning a little bit people are worried have concern about the actual products what they're going to do i'm talking to you mid-april the eu just basically said hey we're Mm going to start trying to regulate this stuff and most people i've talked to especially at at big companies like microsoft and google say regulation is very important and we think this should be regulated (laughs) which is one wild because big tech companies never used to say we hope to be regulated now they say that out loud Do you think they really expect to be regulated or is that a thing they say and assume that it will never show up or by the time it does, they'll already have moved on? Um, And secondarily, I'm very skeptical, particularly watching uh, the U.S. government try to grapple with social media for the last five years. that they're remotely gonna be able or willing to grapple with technology that even the people who are using it don't understand right now. So I'm w- wondering what you think was sort of the the new talking, what seems to be a new talking point from tech saying, we welcome regulation, please come regulate AI. We think that's great. Is, do they mean it?
3: Well, they mean stop my competitor from doing something that's gonna disadvantage me, right? Okay. So I, I actually think that there is a genuine desire to see something because it just feels like the Wild West. And I also think China and our kind of rivalry and with China, particularly in the technology sector, is part of what's driving that. We had reported recently that venture funds backed by U.S. investors were investing in Chinese AI startups. And, you know, it kind of prompted an outroar among a lot of investors in the U.S. who were thinking, okay, you know, why are we emboldening uh, rivals in in ai which many people classify as almost like you know weaponry right or secret technology Mm -hmm. in some way so i think there are a lot of people in silicon valley who see a data point like that they see you know how fast open ai is moving and also it's not so hard to imagine societal harm as it might be i mean in in targeted ads, we could imagine societal harm of you know your discrimination and marketing mm-hmm. and all these things, but AI is really a, a different beast. And so, yeah, it, it is by no means clear how on earth a government will will dig its teeth into this. But I think you're you're starting to hear a lot more people bringing it up and traveling to Washington, and so. I, I expect a lot of working groups soon.
1: <laughs> yeah, it seems like something where maybe there'll be some legislation introduced in the next couple of years, but I can't imagine anything meaningful getting passed, at least in this country, for a long time. But I'm always happy to be wrong. I want to just circle back and, and tie this up with a Gestalt question. And I asked you about the mood, and people are excited. And we talked about how this comes on the heels of sort of the crypto flame out. There's an argument I've been hearing a little bit recently, kind of quietly, that it's not just crypto, that that Silicon Valley really has not had a big hit in a long time. And you can play a little mind game where you try to go back five years and then you can keep moving the, the clock back and try to find a new... Company founded in X number amount of times, so five years for this argument, that has been meaningful, that is really breaking through. And you, in the in the mm. five year version, you can't find one. Is it possible that Silicon Valley has has gone sort of fallow for an extended period of time? Is and is that part of what we're seeing here? The 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 excitement around AI in particular, or am I overstating it?
3: I think it's hard to say. I mean, what I also think we've seen, of course, is that technology and innovation is really spreading throughout business. I mean, the number of new streaming subs has gone to incumbents in media, right? Like Disney Mm -hmm. versus, on a relative basis, Netflix is is sort of the the rest of the non-tech world catching up to the tech world. And I think that has kind of defined definitely the last five years, you know, probably a bit more as well. But I don't get any sense. I mean, if, if I still pay strong attention to like where is the talent going? Where do the engineers right out of Stanford want to go work? And even with the disruption of the pandemic and so on, there is an incredible concentration of talent and capital coming out of tech and I think not just in AI but energy and and batteries and climate and there's just there's a lot of activity. So I I don't think the lesson is so much that the valley's lost its mojo. I I think it's much more that technology and innovation are are being impactful in in many new ways too. But AI is a a jolt of energy here. You know, there's some buzz forming. Our weekend section kind of helped coin the term cerebral valley, which is another crack at kind of giving...
1: Tell us what Cerebral Valley is.
3: Well, Cerebral Valley would kind of be like the AI, you know, especially in San Francisco where a lot of AI companies are clustered, that area and that community, which as far as I can tell, has way too many happy hours in a given week. I just didn't, don't know how it's possible to hit so many AI happy hours yet. Um Yet, you know, the youth out here are doing it. And so
1: thought I, I thought I read in the information that no one drinks in Silicon Valley anymore. It's all California sober, They're
3: non-alcoholic beer at their California sober AI happy hours. And, you know, cue the next season of HBO Silicon Valley or <laughs> Max's Silicon Valley, whatever it's called. But no, I, I think it's um, I think we're going to see a, a lot that. You know, frankly, it's gonna bend our brains a little bit more than the last generation of tech. So I, I think everyone should buckle up.
1: I'm getting ready to have my brain bent. Thank you, Jessica <laughs> Lesson. Thanks, Peter. Thanks to Renata Nyborg, Dora Berman and Jessica Lesson. Next week on the final episode in this AI miniseries, we'll hear about the ethical pitfalls some people in AI are trying to navigate and I also hear from inside Google, which dominates tech today and is trying to figure out how to do that in an AI future. Thanks to Matt Frassica for producing this episode. Megan Kunain is our editor. Jelani Carter is our engineer. Brandon McFarland scored and mixed this episode. We'll talk to you next week.